What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code SPP podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com hey listeners this is Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Demp. And I'm John Rojas. I wonder how many times I've started a podcast with hey. Just the word hey. No, you know what I was thinking was in my mind, I'm sitting there going, he tries to change this up every time. I don't really. I usually say, hey, everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. So this time I just said listener instead of everybody. Yeah. I, I just can't get over the, the inflection one from the other week. <laughs> Me too. I <laughs> thought about that. Anyway, sorry about the rambling. This week is is really interesting. We have Professor Dr. Robert, a.k.a. Bob Sutton, on the show. And he has a brand new book that is coming out in a few days called Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. And John admitted prior to the show, he was like, I don't really know how does scaling kind of pertain to me. But what did you think about it? No, it was awesome. And I didn't have an idea how scaling would pertain to me because... I'm working for myself and at home and I was like, how do I scale one to How do I scale me? Yeah, besides eat a lot of food. I don't I don't know how to make scale in that term. But no, it was very interesting. I enjoyed it, learned a lot from it, and hopefully everybody else does too. The other thing is we also talked to him about his previous books, especially Good Boss, Bad Boss, where really he talks about what makes a good boss versus a bad boss. He gives examples and we've all been there. We've all worked for them. So that's an interesting one as well. Yeah, and the no asshole rule. The I no, love that. The no asshole rule. Absolutely love that. And Bob, you know, one of the ways, I mean, we found him through a myriad of ways, but one of the things that was most impressive is he was rated one of the 50 best business school professors in the country. Uh, the guy, he does well. And I think the reason is, as he mentioned, he tries to make it entertaining while also informative. Not only that, he has quite the educational background. UC Berkeley for his BA, University of Michigan for his MBA and PhD. And he knocked this all out in a course of seven or eight years. And he completely makes me feel like I have underachieved. You have. He is the professor of management science and engineering in the Stanford Engineering School. He is the co-founder of the Center for Work, Technology, and Organization. And he also is the co-founder of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. He does a lot of other stuff. He's written great books. He's got a lot to give. We're going to turn it over to Dr. Robert slash Bob Sutton.
All right, Bob. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Again, thanks so much for being on the show. You are a, a fantastic leader in the world of professors and teaching. Um, I know that currently you are a professor at Stanford, and right. you've been recognized as one of the top business school professors in the country. So I was hoping you could tell us, I guess, first, how'd you get there? What's been your path to being a professor, author, writer, all that good stuff? Well, well so that's an interesting question. So, so one thing that is always very confusing with me is, is I, I, I guess I do have an appointment in the Stanford Business School and I do teach business, so it confuses or management, it confuses everyone. But I'm actually in the School of Engineering and I have no business degrees. I'm a, <laughs> I, my PhD is in organizational psychology. So I've had this sort of weird life where all the academic articles I've written, the 100 or so academic articles I've written, and also the um, books that I've written are all for a business crowd. But I thought when I got to the Stanford Engineering School 30 years ago, I'd last about two years and go on to a business school. And I did do a lot of flirtations with business schools. I taught at the Haas Business School at Berkeley for a year or so. But I really liked the engineering school. And uh, one of the main reasons is, uh, frankly, compared to other business schools, there is much less constraint. And, you know, the joke at Stanford Engineering School is if you can raise money, you can do it as long as it's not illegal. And so, <laughs> so it's really been a great place to work. So very entrepreneurial place. And so, I mean, in terms of my, I don't know, I guess more administrative stuff, I've been involved in in starting an entrepreneurship center. I've been involved um, in starting a, a center that studies, it's called the Center for Work Technology and Organization. In the last few years, the Stanford D School or Hustle Platner Institute of Design. So, so it's the kind of place that, Although I did have to go through, and I still do um, some more traditional academic research for peer-reviewed journals, but uh, it's been an incredibly um, flexible and freeing places. And and I've noticed my my dean Jim Plummer in the engineering school, he's just retiring. And one thing I really appreciated about Jim's 15-year run was he really thought that as faculty it was our job to try stuff that pushed the envelope. And I can't believe how how weird some of the stuff he's letting me um, and others get away with. A, a lot of, frankly, a lot of business school professors at research schools in Stanford is a research schools. I, so I've written six. Uh, this is my sixth uh, business book for popular audiences in a row. They would give you grief because you're not doing enough academic research anymore. And my dean and department chair think that it's just great that uh, that I'm actually doing stuff that might have some impact on real people rather than 29 academics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Something that might actually get read by the populace. Yeah, and, and, it, and, it, and it does shock me. I mean, you're talking about some of my other books that, you know, still about once every three or four weeks, well, about once a day, I still get an email from somebody about an asshole boss or something like uh -huh. that. Yeah. But, but frankly, the more heartening ones are about once a month, I get something about a company that has a no asshole rule. And one of the companies that I've been close to for some years is called Baird, which is in um, Wisconsin. It's a financial services firm. And they just got in the top 10 uh, best place to work list. And they have the no asshole rule. Now, I think they had it before they ever heard of me or met me. But it's great to see. Uh, but, you know, we sort of like uh, talk about one another. And it's great to see that sort of happening, happening in a company. So anyway, so that's the kind of stuff that really warms my heart. I love that. And now one of the things I want to ask you is, as we mentioned, you've been recognized as such a great professor. And and as I mentioned in the pre-interview, John and I both got business degrees. I was wondering, uh -huh. what do you think is the key to to really succeeding as a professor? What do, what do you believe your role is? What do you take into the classroom and try to instill in your students? Well, so so that's, that, I think it's an interesting question, and it's a complicated one, and I'll try to Keep it simple. At the basis, I think no matter what population you're teaching, whether it's doctoral students, undergraduates, executives, or master's students, people want to be entertained. If they're not entertained, they're not going to listen to you. Uh, they want to do something that I think is actually relevant, and they at least want to be able to tolerate and even like you as a person. So, so, the, so, so those basics, I think, apply for um, all sorts of education, but it's really quite interesting to see what's happened during, as I say, the 30 years I've been at Stanford, at least the way I see my journey, whatever, as, a, as an educator, it started out, I mean, when I first got to Stanford, I would just do lectures. I mean, I would stand there 
And, and I'd sometimes have them answer questions. I'd just do lectures. Then, you know, somewhere along the line, I started, uh, and it was also very straight academic research. I didn't care about um, cases at all for the most part. Uh, and then the students would tolerate it. But then I sort of moved to more doing cases, having the students do case studies and stuff like that, um, and bringing uh, the workplace into the classroom a little bit more. But what's been happening at Stanford, and I think I've been lucky to be part of the last seven or eight years with the rise of the D School or the Hospital Platner Institute of Design and other changes is, is that increasingly we're moving to this model that, uh, that we call do to think, basically. So it's very, very hands-on. And to give you two quick examples of, of classes, that uh, one that um, I occasionally visit and the other one that um, I help teach some is uh, one class that I'm involved in this, this term, which is called D-Leadership. What we do is we take pairs of student groups, and by the way, a few executives too, we've snuck into the class, some senior ones in fact, and send them into organizations and have them do what are essentially consulting jobs and try to change the organizations. In another even crazier course on this notion of sort of do to think is that uh, the entrepreneurship class that I think, uh, there's a couple of them, but the, the first one, this direction, we have this thing called Launchpad, where, um, and this is taught by two friends of mine, two non-traditional academics, Michael Deering, who's a venture capitalist, and Perry Claybon, who is an entrepreneur who, among other things, invented the modern snowshoe. And they have their students start a company in the class. And the rule is, if you don't have a product by week four, you're supposed to get thrown out. Wow. I don't know, they, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's called um, Launchpad. And there's other folks that are using the Launchpad label, but they're on their fourth year, and um, I think they've had a – Perry sent me the list. They've had, a, they've had about 45 companies, and about half of them are still alive, and four or five of them are conventionally successful, looks like 10 or more employees and sort of more than $10 million, and one of them got sold, a company called Pulse, for $90 million to LinkedIn. So all three of those things are going on at once. There's lectures, there's cases, there's hands-on sort of stuff. But but the mix of ways that you teach business students and, and and in the D school we're interdisciplinary. We have business, we have engineer, we have lawyers, we have people from education. As I say, we even have visiting executives. A very senior guy from Hyatt's in our class this year. I think he was running the New York part of the operation, which is like the profit engine of Hyatt Hotels. Incredible. But in these cases, what I'm seeing is this attempt to sort of bring together essentially, hopefully what we know about organizations in an abstract sense with the reality. And so, so I, I think it's a really interesting time in management um, education and education more broadly because uh, this sort of combination, my co-author Huggy Rao and I talk about clean models and dirty hands. I think you still need the abstract stuff. You'll, you still need the block and tackle concepts, but weaving it in with reality is, uh, is what, um, and, 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 and I, I would not take individual credit for this. I'm lucky to be part of a social context where lots of other people are doing this in lots of other ways. You make a great point. People are realizing that education now needs to be more hands-on, experiential, as opposed to a teacher just standing up there and just lecturing. We've talked about it before on the podcast, utilizing such tools as the Khan Academy, online tutorials, etc. It's the new paradigm. I think the new paradigm is a bunch of paradigms, and we're trying to figure out how they fit together. So it is sort of, I mean, that's the other part with the online thing. The online thing, you can, you know, they, they, they call this flip, but it does work. So, so sometimes I'll have my students now watch a video online so I don't show it to them in class. And that's not the kind of thing that was easily done in the past. And so, so there's all sorts of crazy things happening. But one thing that I, I do like, especially at the Stanford D School, and, and of course there's plenty of stuck-in-the-mud classic professors who will just stand up and teach uh, the same thing they've been teaching for 30 years. But, but for the most part, I mean, I feel very encouraged and I have a lot more fun um, when I do stuff. The, the, the other thing that's happening, there's sort of a subtext here, especially at the D school and other places where I'm involved in teaching is that um, increasingly it's a, it's a team sport. And so you don't just do it yourself. You have a team of folks who have a different set of skills. So, so the, the folks that I teach with, especially Perry Claybon 
and a guy named Jeremy Utley, frankly, they're much better at hands-on coaching than I am. And, um, and I'm learning from them and they learn from me, but, but it's, it's less efficient, but it's also more satisfying. And then the other extreme, we're going to online education, which is more efficient. So it's an odd mix. Yeah, no, I, I completely get that. I wanted to transition a little bit to uh, your, I believe it was your last book, which was Good Boss, Bad Boss. Yes. And I thought that was, it is a fantastic write just because so many people, I mean, the majority of people have dealt with both in their in their life the good boss the bad boss and it really shapes much of your life i mean because of the amount of time we spend at work because of deep down we all have this kind of sensitive side that can be crushed by a bad boss right. and and vice versa with a good boss so i was hoping you could give us if you remember this far back um i remember you know <laughs> could you tell us about a leader that did it right and why and then also one that did it wrong and, and why that was okay well it is complicated but but i guess i guess if i was gonna start out with my favorite um i mean he the guy's amazing and in fact um for your listeners you might want to encourage him to buy his book so ed catmill who is uh He's the driving force behind Pixar. In fact, from and I've gotten to know Ed a little bit. He's got a book coming out called Creativity Incorporated. I mean, he devoted essentially almost his entire professional life from after his PhD to animated movies. So his PhD at the University of Utah, Ed must be 65 now, was it was an, an amazing animated hand. And, and he sort of went on and moved from a technical guy to somebody who sees himself as building a creative culture. And, uh, and and Ed is the the culture and the soul of Pixar, and he's he's quite good technically. I've got he's got a PhD in computer science and did some of the leading stuff of his day. But some of the stuff that especially strikes me about Ed is in any situation that Ed is in, he is always focused on what the other people around him need. So in Good Boss Bad Boss, I talk about this about the importance of being in tune with the people you lead. And he is absolutely fabulous about that and is and is just shockingly self, selfless for how accomplished he is. And one thing I really had to laugh at, I had the privilege over sort of over Christmas time last year. So Ed's been working on this book for a long time to spend a lot of time giving um, Ed detailed comments on um, his new book, which is finally coming out in April, Creativity Incorporated. And he's the first senior executive I ever gave the comment to you know, Ed, there's not enough narcissism in here. I mean, because like he'd, be, he'd be telling you a story about the day that him and Steve Jobs and John Lasseter announced to Pixar that they were basically selling him to Disney. And, and so, Ed, what did you feel? What did you say? He was so focused on the other people around him that he is nearly selfless. And, and the amount of loyalty that people have to him at Pixar um, is, ju is just astounding. So in addition to being quite good technically and being the driving force behind what is one of the great uh, creative organizations, certainly in the Bay Area, one of the most interesting ones um, I've ever seen, uh, but Ed is somebody who does it in such a way that he both gets get people to do great work and they feel great about being part of a larger whole because Ed is so selfless. So, so, so I guess that's that's my uh, my, my example of a good boss. You know, I, I don't really like to sort of like bash people too much. Oh, come on! <laughs> but if I you're you're asking, but if if I was going to pick somebody who is really offensive to my values, I guess I would pick Donald Trump. And. And, and the reason I find Donald Trump so offensive is clearly he can get things done, and I guess some people around him like him. But but somebody who in every situation uses the word I, mm -hmm. and and it is constantly just out to get people. It, there's just there's just there's just a level of greed and selfishness that I see in that. And I compare Don Donald Trump. Uh, to somebody like Ed Catmull, they both have more money than any human being reasonably ever needs. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty upsetting. Uh, so somebody else to throw in who wasn't quite so mean and selfish, but kind of didn't get it. Uh, it was really a shame what happened when uh, Hewlett Packard brought in Carly Farina. And, and you know, my, and my uh, Donald Trump, I just know what I need in the press. But uh, 
and I better not name their names. We'll see how much trouble I get in. But I actually uh, have taught quite some time with two members of uh, Carly's uh, top management team uh, when, when she was CEO of HP. And, and that, they were already in trouble, but she did really such, and, and I guess this gets to my uh, negative effect for narcissism, but, but I, it was so much about her. She was just flying around giving speeches mm. and really not focusing on running the organization. And, and, sort of, and there's also sort of a meanness to her that everybody was on the top management team, a meanness and a selfishness that, that was sort of hard to deny. And, and, and the other problem she had, frankly, is although she was very smart strategically, she probably wasn't good enough technically to understand how to, how to run that, that firm. But, but Carly sort of had a weird career. I mean, she, she keeps failing at things and she keeps going forward. So she got fired by HP. That was the first job she ever had where she had profit and loss responsibility. So that's another sign that she, she wasn't particularly uh, ready for the job. And then, then she ran for uh, Senate here in California. She didn't get that. Oh, and she got, oh, she got thrown under the bus by John McCain. So she's had, <laughs> a, a, she's had a tough few years. And I, I just sometimes think with somebody like Carly, if she'd listened more and thought about herself less, that better things would have happened at, U at Hewlett Packard. Uh, right before, uh, about three months before she, she got fired, I had the really weird experience of giving a talk to 70 senior people at Hewlett Packard. And I pro that people probably asked me 200 questions and made as many comments. No one ever mentioned the CEO's name. Wow. I have never experienced anything like that in my life. Um, so, so I guess I gave you two, Donald Trump and Carly Farina. Do you think that the traits that Ed exhibits in terms of selfishness and caring for others can truly be taught? Or do you think that's, that's something that's ingrained within somebody's personality and those? Well, I, that's sort of like the nature nurture debate, which right. you know, I, I, all my degrees are in psychology and we're not going to resolve this here. But, but, but I, I guess my reaction is that there's a, there's a lot of evidence, and you can, there's some great research by a woman named Carol Dweck that gets to this, that, that, that actually, especially if people believe they can change, this is the growth mindset, they actually can change more than they think. And, and I won't tell you which director it is, but, but Ed, you know, at one point told me um, a great story about one of his directors who was fantastic technical, technically, but really was just burning out the, the, um, the staff um, at Pixar. And so Ed said the guy was so talented. And by the way, getting a good director is really hard to do. I mean, you think of the weird set of skills it takes to do a Pixar animated movie. Hmm. So Ed said, I, I didn't want to get rid of him, but I really had to coach him. So Ed said he worked on him for years. And then finally this guy came around. So, so I guess that's the thing. If somebody's going to change, you need a long time horizon. And so apparently at the close of the movie, and you would have known, your listeners would know what the movie is, he made a little speech to, uh, you know, they have a closing party, a rap party. And he said, so, uh, so I've changed over the years. And he said, what I've learned as a director is that when something goes well, it's because other people did it. And when something goes badly, it's my fault. And as long as I follow that rules, everything's okay. And I, I thought that was, that was and, and a lot of people at Pixar told me that story. So anyway, so, so the sort of upshot is, yes, people can change, but a lot of it, for those of us who are in organizations, a lot of it depends on what the time horizon is. Sometimes you don't have time to have somebody go through a personal transformation when you're their leader. And sometimes you've got a boss who's such a jerker, so incompetent, that uh, it's just better to get the hell out. And just one thing to add, since I wrote the no asshole rule and good boss, bad boss, you know, my, my new thing is that... Uh, that uh, one thing that I probably didn't emphasize enough early in uh, these writings is I, I had the experience of working for somebody who was the nicest and most incompetent boss I ever dealt with, <laughs> who shall not be named. <laughs> Honestly, after about a year or two, I just would have rather had a competent asshole. Wow. And it's not like assholes are good, but like pure, the, the common, and, and, th and this is my advice so I always give people, if you're going to be incompetent, be nice. Because you can, it's amazing how long you can keep your job if you're really nice because it's so hard to get rid of somebody who's incompetent and really, really nice. I completely That's agree with you on that, actually. <laughs> I think so, that so much of you know, so what happens have, in the workplace can be dwindled down to who likes you and who doesn't. Oh, but but in, in this particular case, and, and eventually we, a group of us were involved in sort of 
you know, easing him to the side. He didn't get fired. He just he had great individual contributor skills. But it was just so tough because you talked to him and he was the nicest guy. But I mean, he wouldn't do uh, just to give you a, a specific example. I have no idea how you can run a modern organization without doing email. He didn't do email. He just he he just didn't do it. It was like unbelievable. This week's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code SPP. That's offer code SPP. I got to say, speaking from experience, Squarespace is beautiful, it's easy, and it's convenient. I've done it, and I don't even know how to build websites. Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have over 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from. And as I mentioned, it's incredibly easy to use. But if you want help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience, so you don't have to worry about what your site looks like on phones and tablets. You know it will look beautiful. Squarespace takes care of that for you. Now here comes the most important part. Start with the trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SPP to get 10% off and to show your support for our podcast. I think we can all agree. Glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. That's where Warby Parker comes in. Their prescription glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. And all glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. There's no additional cost. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. They have an awesome home try-on program that allows you to have five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door. You can keep these frames for five days, select your favorite pair, and ship them back using a prepaid return shipping label with no obligation to purchase. Obviously, glasses are viewed as a fashion accessory, just like a bag, a shoe, or a necktie. You want something that looks good, fits you, and does the job. And at $95, you get boutique-quality, classically-crafted eyewear at a revolutionary price point. So go to warbyparker.com slash smartpeople to choose your five free home try-on frames. By visiting warbyparker.com slash smartpeople, you will get free three-day shipping. Send the frames back, choose your favorite pair, and order. Don't forget, you'll be contributing to a charitable cause. Buy a pair, give a pair. For every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. Enjoy the rest of the show. But he was so nice when you said, oh, well, how come you didn't answer my email? Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not really into email. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm not I'm into not email. email either, but I'm not going to do my job without it. That's so. the equivalent of saying, like, you know, I'm not really into talking to people, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll run this company. That's, that's pretty a, that's, crazy. A, that's right. I'm not, I'm not into leadership. Because yeah. yeah, email, I, and we all know, we, we shouldn't go into this rant too much, that, that email sucks, but, well, how else do you do your job? And I, and I even remember way back in 1999, um, I mean, there's other things now, but still, it's partly true. Uh, being part of an incubator that's called Reactivity, ran by a guy named John Lilly, you know, a venture capitalist, great guy. And and I remember him in the group saying, so email is the killer app on the internet. And there are other things in the internet now, but email is still doing pretty good as much as it annoys all of us. So, you know, anyhow. this is the first time I've asked this question on this podcast out of, I don't even know how many we've done at this point, <laughs> but I need to ask you. What did people do before email? Like, did they just pick up the phone and call somebody? Well, I, I was alive then. You'd send letters. You'd call them. Letters. That's letters. I, I, so I sent a lot of letters because, like, I'm an old guy. You know, <laughs> there, there is this thing called the telephone. Yeah. Letters, things like that. Wow. That's, That's crazy. Well, I want to move on now to your most recent book, Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. And it's really interesting. John and I, looking at this, approached it a little differently uh, as uh -huh. our listeners who have followed along probably know, John worked for a big consulting firm. I work for an extremely small startup nonprofit. Uh -huh. And scaling, 
means completely different things to us. And I'm Uh actually currently in this mode where we're trying to grow. We're really increasing visibility. We're spread out. Uh So I'm extremely interested in what you're writing about. I wanted to, I guess, first, in your own words, kind of succinctly, if you could tell us what, you know, what led you to this book and what you're trying to get across in it. Sure. Well, so I guess a lot of things led us to this book, but maybe more than anything else, this was in uh, 2006, Huggy Rao, Huggy just arrived at Stanford from Northwestern. And, and we taught actually this executive program, which was one of the first d-school executive programs and consistent with some of our earlier conversations. It was a very experimental program in those days. We brought in 30 executives and taught them cases in the morning and everything. But then in the afternoon, it was called, it's called customer Focus innovation. It still exists. We'd have them run out and do something that was hands-on. In fact, that year, the focus was on, we worked with Arco gas stations, BP gas stations, and tried to improve the experience, at, the customer experience of these terrible gas stations. They were just horrible. It was, uh, people would just go there because the gas was cheap. So we had these 30 folks, and they're talking about customer-focused innovation. One, one person after another came up to us and basically said the same thing, which is that, so, you know, customer-focused innovation is important to us, and it's cool. But in my organization, we've got a few people or a few pockets who do it well. The problem is how do we spread it from where it is to where it needs to be? And so, and, and frankly, we had pretty bad answers. And then we started thinking about, the, so this challenge of how do you spread it from where it is to where it isn't, from the few to the many. Um, and, and they were calling it scaling. So it's okay, we're calling it scaling. But then we, since we're in startup land in Silicon Valley, we, we started realizing this is also an issue for them too, scaling has different characteristics, but the general characteristics, if you've got a, a spot of goodness, how do you expand it out to others? So either we're being nuts in Imperial or we've found some basic fundamental concept that that for um, us, we believe that a basic management skill is uh, spreading and multiplying something that's good. So, so for you folks, it could be expanding, adding just one or two people I mean, one of the examples we look at in the book is, I already mentioned them, they're called Pulse, this uh, news aggregator, Pulse News, that just got acquired by uh, LinkedIn a little while ago. So Ankit and Akshay, who started the the company, uh, we talked to them about how difficult it was to move from four to seven to 11 people. And there's actually quite a bit of change that goes on because you get to the point where you can't work all in one group all at once. And so to us, that's that's a classic sort of scaling sort of issue. But yeah, it's like I say, either either we are being too broad or we've we're focusing on the essence of something. And I guess it's up for our, up to our readers to decide. But but that challenge of spreading something good to us is is a core management skill and challenge that that I think we all have to face. Exactly. And I think that a lot of people don't necessarily understand that or focus on it until they're in a position where they have to to think about it, how difficult it is. So I was wondering, what did you find the the biggest difficulties with growth are? What do what do these companies face? What challenges? Well, I mean, the list is long, but let me pick. If I was going to say my top three, let sure. me let me or our top three. Let let me let me pick sort of the top three. The first one is, well, I may even do four, but but, but the, the first one just sort of as a headline it, is that when people are spreading something like excellence or something good, if they just think about spreading skills or running up the numbers, it doesn't work. They really have to think, focus on instilling a constructive way of thinking, a mindset. And exhibit one here, by the way, is Facebook. We talk about Facebook a lot in the book. And, and we've, we've known and followed various um, executives and others at Facebook since about 2006 because uh, they've been around Stanford a lot. And from the very beginning, to Zuckerberg's credit, his view was that he was not just growing a big company and, and bringing in all those users. In his company, there had to be a mindset. And a lot of it was this move fast and break things they talk about a lot there. And he would talk about it in the early days. But now when you're a new Facebook employee, especially an engineer, uh, you spend your first six weeks living that mindset. They don't, they're not even sure what job you're going to have. They put you um, on 10 or 12 different projects, and you make actual changes in the site that you can show people, and then you kind of decide what job you want. But the key is you're living this move fast and break things mindset. So that's one thing. Another challenge, sometimes we call this, I guess 
in the book, we call this the Buddhism Catholicism trade-off or dimension. Another big thing when you're scaling is, is deciding how much you need to standardize everything versus allowing individual customization. Uh, that's a big challenge in everything from a group of surgeons who uh, either want to each do it their own way or will follow more standardized techniques to, versus that versus spreading IKEA into China and how much to change the existing model. But people who are involved in scaling almost always sort of struggle with that dimension, which is how much do we insist on straight replication versus allowing some variation. The third one, which is a problem even you can see it is organizations grow hugely or even from four to 20 people is how do we deal with the increasing complexity without making it feel like people are walking in muck and i could go on and on there but if i was going to leave one thing for your listeners i think the most important lesson we learned and we already sort of implied this is watch when your teams get too big um, when your teams get bigger than five or six they usually start especially five or six, maybe eight or 10, performance starts going down the toilet. And uh, Apple is sort of the genius of that. And then the last thing I would add, and then I should shut up and see what your questions are, that for us spreading excellence, one thing that sometimes get lost and uh, is that people will focus on sort of spreading the good they have, but the hallmark of organizations that spread and sustain excellence of any size is they're very vigilant about getting rid of the bad stuff first. And, and it's everything from horrible things like stealing, laziness, and incompetence to little things. And I'll give you one example, and then we can, we can stop and talk. One of um, the stars, our scaling stars in our book, is a guy named Chris Fry. Chris, he had a good year. He's the head of engineering at Twitter, so, uh, so he made a lot of money last year. Before that, he ran with another guy named Steve Green, development at uh, salesforce.com. But when Chris got to Twitter, and he's had a big impact on Twitter, those of us who tweet, remember the fail whale that used to come up all the time? You guys remember that? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so Chris, if you think about it, it kind of about it's kind of gone now. And uh, Chris and his team are largely responsible for that. So when Chris gets to Twitter, he looks around and he's in a meeting with a bunch of his engineers and they're not looking at them. They're all looking at the cell phones. You know, and you imagine who works at Twitter. So he said, so what I did was I collected them and put them in a basket. And he didn't take them away. We gave them afterwards. And he said, and I actually got them to listen and talk because he said that we would do stuff like we would make decisions and they'd raise their hands and vote and they wouldn't even be listening. So to me, that's an example of sort of getting away the bat. And he said, we make better decisions in meetings now. And gee, by the way, they're shorter. So, so to me, that's an example of, of the kind of vigilance that and, and obviously Twitter is an effective organization in many ways, but in every organization to make room for the good to spread, you've always got to be focused on, on getting rid of the bad, if you will. And let me tell you, you'd be looked at and regaled as a great boss if you can make the meetings more effective and shorter. I'm sure his teams looked at him after doing that and just had such high praise for him. Yeah, but he, he was pretty funny. I, I, we, I, we've talked to him. We're actually doing an event with him. Commonwealth Club in a few weeks. And he said, yeah, but you know, when you first take them away from, because think about who works at Twitter, he said they were sort of vibrating. They were like drug addicts who didn't have their fix. <laughs> he said, we've gotten over it though. So, so anyways, but that's, that's something in a lot of organizations I see not happening. The scaling thing is an interesting challenge. It is. And, and I'm really glad you went through all those. I mean, I honestly didn't want to butt in. I wanted to hear that. One of the things I'm dealing with, and you specifically, you mentioned it specifically, is replication versus variation. Uh, it's really tough to know when you have somebody, you know, I have somebody that I, I don't know if I would call him an employee of mine or whatever, but uh, that I manage in California, in Tennessee, and I'm trying to pass along this knowledge that I've gained over the past year, kind of helping establish this foundation and I don't know how to do it. And I don't know how much I want to do it because I trust them, right? I, that's why we have them on board. But right. so it's this fine line of how much do you give them? And then how much freedom do you give them? So to me, that's just even with that one person, that's the essence of the scaling challenge of the, the, the degree to which you are insisting on. And, and in a lot of ways, it is control and standardization. And there's some reasons it works because people, you think the same, you communicate efficiently, people encounter you, encounter sort of the same brand. And, and, and just time and time again in organizations, we see 
where they've got to make a decision, if you will, to slide one way or the other. One sign is if it seems like there's no there there and there's just a collection of individuals, that's a sign you got to, we would say, tilt toward Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, one of, there was a head of a big architecture firm, NBBJ, quite a famous architecture firm, managing partner. And he said when he first took over, we had such a group of individuals, it was like running a a house for stray cats. I would just put the food in and hope that they would come back and come to work every day. But then they had no control (laughs) over them at all. And, uh, And one intermediate approach, which actually this happened in NBBJ, is to just put down a few basic we sometimes we call it sacred beliefs or guardrails, things that you can kind of do what you want, but don't violate this. And those can those actually can be very powerful. Just I mean, a, a real simple one at NBBJ was well, two things they do is that every project before they take it has to be evaluated by two people from another office, so that there's actually some outside opinion. We don't do anything stupid. And then the other thing is that. They now have a philosophy of only taking work that is high value, not stuff that is commodity work that ruins their brand. And they have a few other things in branding and the like. But one thing that I've seen in organizations um, and even small ones is sort of agreeing on just a few basic fundamentals, as my colleague Huggy Rao used to, likes to say, is uh, about what's sacred to us and what's taboo. And, and what's sacred and taboo can, can actually vary wildly from organizations. Like in some organizations, secrecy is sacred. In others, it's taboo. It just depends on the organization. I love that. I love the way you describe that. It's basically a, you know, like a put it out there and tell your employees the must-dos and the can't-stands. And then let them work within that those parameters yeah. and see what they can create. And if you give them like a thousand rules... They'll just feel like they're walking in muck. But if you give them a few things they can't crash through, well, then they can work around it just at a much larger scale. At the end of the second chapter, the Buddhism Catholicism chapter, uh, we talk about the rollout of a patient record system at Kaiser Permanente, which is the biggest healthcare system in the country. And Louise Lang, this kind of brilliant doctor who oversaw this project, she said, we realized we couldn't lay down all these rules, but we sort of put down four or five things that they absolutely had to do. And, uh, and, and it was amazing how effective it was. One of them was real simple, which is that when a patient sends you an email, you have to answer it within 24 hours. And, and things like that are very powerful. For And also the branding has to look the same no matter which Kaiser unit you, unit you go to when it's patient-facing. Sort of simple things like that that really do cause constraints and help, help people sort of focus. On the other side, once you have the list of 300 rules, then everything goes to hell because people forget what really matters anyways. Right. Now, the other thing I was I was thinking is what did you determine about expanding too fast? The the footprint grows right. and that's your only mindset and then it actually leads to potentially your demise in in the company. Yeah, you know, it it, it is interesting because so, so in general, yes, if 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 you keep just adding more and more numbers without sustaining excellence basically and, and keeping everybody on the same page you are in big trouble. And you can see this everything from Starbucks and they overexpanded internationally. And in fact, that's one of the reasons Howard Schultz came back as CEO in 2007. He basically said, I think the term was we expanded so quickly that we watered down our brand and our customer experience. So that's one extreme. On the other extreme, you see in startups where, and this is, can be a disease out here in Silicon Valley, where they get more money that's good than is good for them. So what they do is, before they have a decent product to sell. And, and this is, my venture capitalist friends describe this as a standard path of destruction for overfunded startups. One of them may be Groupon, by the way. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, it depends who you talk to, but that's one opinion that I've heard about Groupon, is you get all this money and you have this product that is not quite right to sell, but because you have the, the money to buy the marketing and the salespeople, they st- they start getting out there selling something that isn't ready for prime time. And OG, by the way, since you have all that money, what they do is they start installing all these processes that make it impossible for people in layers that make it impossible for people to move forward. So that idea, one of the analogies I've heard is that, you know, sometimes they get so much money, it's like strapping a a rocket engine onto a car (laughs) that, you know, they're kind of hard to control. So anyhow, yeah, the scaling thing is, is really fairly complicated and one of the one of the arguments we make, and I was actually just working on writing something right before uh, we, we got on Skype, is this notion that when we look at organizations that scale effectively, they have this ability to know 
when to sort of downshift and slow down to sort of get things right so then they can move more quickly in the future. And I, I, I will say that, that Google and, and Facebook, Google especially, you look at their history, they were under so much pressure to do things really quickly because everybody loved their search engine and everybody said they should go public immediately. Larry really held off on them going public for a long period of time constantly. And, and so Jeff Pfeffer, my colleague, and I interviewed uh, Larry Page in 2002. And then for this book, we did an interview with a woman named Shona Brown, who was number four at Google and grew them from, she ran sort of the organizational part of the thing, business operations from 2000 to 30,000. And, and, and both of them, way back in 2002, in this more recent interview, they really emphasized that we wouldn't move any faster than than we could in terms of bringing aboard the right people um, that we had, and also basically having the quality of the product we uh, we wanted out there. And they, they do a lot of experimenting at Google and came up with a lot of um, all that beta stuff and everything. But but this really um, this notion that we're going to take time to get the right people and do it right, even though the market is telling us to move faster, is is I think one of one of the the, the hallmarks of organizations that ironically scale very quickly because what happens is is they resist doing the wrong things too early. So when the timely moment comes, that they can really crank up very quickly. And I, and I think that uh, Google especially was exemplary in that. You know, it's really funny. I was thinking about this and the, the general consensus of your book not only applies to organizations, but it also can apply to everyone, just individuals. I mean, in general, even with good, uh, good boss, bad boss and uh -huh. scaling up excellence, it's like this. It's like, be a good person, be efficient, work hard, uh, surround yourself with good people and be creative. And it's like, I don't know. It's, it's just, I feel like that's what happens. That's why organizations are looked at oftentimes as this negative soul sucking beast because they get so far from the individual ideal. It's like easy to say to be a good human, do this, but to be a good organization. Oh boy. Now we lose all, you know, all hope. Well, so, so it is interesting. I mean, to that point, uh, it's an interesting comment. But to that point, I mean, one of the things that comes through that I think might connect the scaling book to some of my earlier work, and, and Huggy would definitely agree with this, is, is, that, is that a lot of the way that we see scaling when it works well, although it seems like it's a big, soulless, large organization, the people who are effective at it, and my definition of effectiveness is always the same, it's that you do good work and you actually treat people with respect along the way, so to me it should always be a duality, is that they really focus on how it starts and ends with individuals. And and, uh, it, it, and you see that in, in so many places. I mean, things like um, great restaurants. It, it, I mean, it isn't just like high-tech and, and large organizations. Uh, great hospitals, great healthcare institutions. Uh, th this notion that it sort of starts and ends with, with individuals, I think, is sort of, is sort of the hallmark of it. And, uh, and so, so I guess that I, I'm agreeing with you. No, I love yep. that. I actually, I want to end it there. I know we've gone over a little bit in time, but also because it starts and ends with people. It starts and ends with the individual in all aspects. And I want everyone out there listening to think about that the next time they're working on their product or service or their marketing for the company that they own or the company they work for. You know, you think about your consumer and the people that you work alongside and hopefully turns out for the best. So, Bob, I really enjoyed talking to you. Your most recent book, Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less, something that everyone, not just those running organizations, but working in them in different companies can benefit from. I know you you actually have a great blog and put out a lot of fantastic content as writing is clearly uh, one of your strengths and also a, a passion of yours. Could you tell our listeners where you're, where they can find your blog and then yeah, where yeah. else? So, so these days, I, I think I'm blogged like – my blog is Work Matters. It's bobsutton.net. I confess that the last three years writing this book, I slowed down my blogging. Lately, I've been blogging in addition to at Work Matters. I've been, I've been blogging at LinkedIn. I'm a LinkedIn influencer. And right around the time of the launch of the book – in fact, I was working on it right before – you guys uh, got in touch with me this morning is um, when the book comes out, which is February 4th, um, I'm going to have a series of posts on the Harvard Business Review website that'll be something like uh, the eight, eight scaling essentials. So I guess in my old age, although I still love my old Work Matters blog, I'm sort of uh, putting stuff a bunch of different places. You're moving it around. You're putting it out there for the masses. 
Well, I, I just get bored of writing in one place, I think. I'm short attention span. No, I, I definitely understand. Well, again, Bob, thank you so much. Congrats on a fantastic book and the success. I mean, I think it's going to do really well, as all your past ones have. So I'm yeah, excited. Yeah, we hope so. It, it, my perspective is we've done everything we can, and we love our book, and all we can do is what happens, happens. So. Absolutely. I love it. All right, Bob. Anyway, well, thanks. thank you so much. Really appreciate thanks, it. Guys. All righty. Have a good day. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you guys enjoyed that interview with Bob, make sure to check him out on Twitter at work underscore matters. He's always posting all kinds of cool articles. He's got a lot of followers. Yeah, he's got a ton of followers. He constantly goes through exchanges with them, which is really cool to see people involved on Twitter. But he also posts to a lot of really interesting content. So check him out there. Hey, now that we're in the basement of the show and... I think I'm going to do this on the previous episode, but check out my website, chrisstemp.com. Yeah, guys, and let us know what you think about it. Let us know how awesome it looks because John designed it. Some guy on this microphone kind of made it. But seriously, if there is something that you guys notice with it and can give any type of feedback, positive or negative, we'd greatly appreciate that. We're trying to get that up and running, and Chris is going to be putting out some awesome content as well as possibly another podcast yeah and it's it's really it's kind of a an amalgamation of what we've learned on this show kind of melding with my own life experiences with john's help it's gonna be cool stuff i'm actually really really proud of thus far the work we've done so check it out and chris will be sure to define amalgamation on his website no i will not i refuse to define my big words to you that's fine Anyways, guys, thanks for checking out the podcast. Let us know what you think. Smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hope you enjoyed it. Share it with a friend. And tweet at us, at SmartPeoplePod. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it.